Elaine knows that I like to mix things up just to keep people on their toes. So I'll start over here because one of my big jobs is saying thank you to lots of people, and I'm going to have Mark help me in a moment to say thank you. On the subject of the Global Social Justice Conference that we hosted at Crossroads in Red Deer, I want to add Kevin Peters as a big thank you. It took about a year to put that conference together. We had a heavy hitter list, and it was tremendous. And then I got this note this morning uh, through Marion. It came to Info at Prairie, so it really wasn't to me. So the you in here is to the collective us. I just wanted to thank you for your support in making the conference happen. I think in many ways it was a game changer for me and helped ignite and reignite the God-given passion I've always had in this area, but had put aside or forgotten. It was so neat to see others alive with the same passion. I need to get more involved. So, uh, you know, our reach kind of went a little bit further on the weekend, and it was tremendous. Kevin Peters, thank you very much. Would you give Kevin a hand? Now, there's another guy that I really, really love, and I know that he is widely loved across this room, and uh, it's Nathan Rook. He is helping us with impact. He's also helping us plan the next building uh, work that we're going to be doing as we head toward our 100th anniversary, and so Nathan is a very important part of what we're doing. He's also a board member, so he's here simply as a volunteer and uh, working his tail off. I think we're working his tail off, but we so appreciate this guy. Now, it happens, and this is not the beginning of a great tradition where we're going to celebrate this every week of someone's birthday, but it's his birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Nathan, and many more. Happy birthday to you. I love you, Nathan. I love you, and thank you so much. This morning, we have a great privilege of having Brian Dirksen speak with us, and this is one of our own, and we're so Honored to have you here, Brian, as part of our team. We're delighted to have you speaking today. We honor you here among us. A prophet is with honor in his own country here on this campus, and we love you. So thank you for coming. Come on up. I'm going to pray for you. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the great subject before us. We thank you for Brian and the words that you've given him. We thank you for his heart for you. We pray that you would speak through him. Bless him right now with an unbelievable anointing of your Holy Spirit, that you would flow through him and all over us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Is James Enns here? Oh, if you, if you walk down Fifth Avenue um, today and there's a really funny cartoon on a big snow pile... You know how they do the, okay, I'm not from Three Hills, I haven't been here that long. They make these huge snow piles, you know, when they're cleaning up the snow, and somebody spray painted a cartoon of James and then pointed towards his house. <laughs> so, if anybody in town was wondering where James lived and what James looks like, just walk down a block down Fifth and you'll see. Um, 
If you're not a student in uh, music and worship arts, it's likely that I haven't had the chance to meet you. Um, and um, just a, a really quick context for me. Um, I'm uh, married to an amazing woman named Joyce. We've been married for 33 plus years. We have six children. Um, yeah, four daughters, two of whom are sitting in this room. And um, two others, my oldest daughter is Rachel, married to a young musician named Luke Vandevert from the band called The Arctic, and another daughter named Mercy, and two boys, Benjamin and Isaiah, who have uh, fragile X syndrome, have limited speech, and are unbelievably um, great blessings to us. I was just speaking with Joyce this morning, and Isaiah came down the stairs thumping. I could hear him like he normally does, and giving Joyce a huge hug to start his day, which is always how he starts his day. So um, I've been given the assignment today by Mark of uh, looking at 1 Samuel 16, 14 to 23, the story of David singing for the mad king Saul. And um, you can turn there. I'm not going to actually literally read the passage. I'm going to do something else with it in a moment. But it, the passage does start with the, this phrase. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And um, when I first looked at this passage, I, 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 I just basically couldn't get past that first phrase for a while. What incredibly tragic words. And I believe it didn't have to be that way. May that statement never be true of us. Now, but this statement, but the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul, makes way for the next chapter in God's unfolding redemption of humankind, this time through a man after God's own heart, as Mark has titled this series. Um, once in an interview, somebody uh, asked me, well, um, which great human being from history I would most like to meet in person, and I, I don't need to spend any amount of seconds to answer that question. My answer is David, right away. Um, I know. The correct Sunday school answer is Jesus. But Jesus is God, so he doesn't count as a great human being. I mean, he does. He was a great human being, but he's both God and man. So let's, so give me that one, okay? Phew. Okay. I could see you were looking a bit worried for a moment there. See, but the only thing is I would like to meet and interview all the different Davids. My wife says I'm her sixth husband. What she means is, we've been married for 33 years, and as an artistic, creative person, I go through phases and changes. So I'm kind of her sixth version, you know. She has to keep on, God bless her, she has to keep on choosing and refalling in love with me and I with her. And that's how great marriages work, by the way. But anyway, I would like to meet and interview all the different Davids. David is a shepherd boy. David is the young musician playing for the Mad King. David as the anointed future king on the run. I'd, I'd love to meet him uh, about 24 hours before he commits adultery with Bathsheba 
and talk to him about where he's at, like what's going on. And then I'd like to, I'd like to have an interview with him like a year after that and see what his perspective is then and what he's learned. You know, you get the idea. I'd like to interview all the different Davids. David has declared a man after God's own heart, which according to some scholars simply means this. Here's the guy God picked and put his heart on. Interesting, we think it's about our pursuit and choice of God when it's more about God's choice and pursuit of us. And I'm pretty sure David never recovered from this truth that he was chosen by God. Among the lineup of his brothers, he was chosen. And those of you that were at chapel last week um, with that wonderful lineup here, and um, um, Carson being Samuel, that was pretty impressive. Um, so, but among the whole lineup, David wasn't even present. It's like his own father didn't want to present him as an option. His own father was embarrassed of who David was, and still God chose David. He was chosen by God. He was loved by God. Um, the, the Music Worship Arts program here has a monthly thing called Music Appreciation Evenings. And last week, uh, we watched Ragamuffin, the film that dramatizes the life and music of Rich Mullins, the man who gave us songs like Awesome God, was in his personal life deeply troubled, a man of great um, wrestling with God because... Him and his father did not get along. His father was a farmer, and his dad, wa his dad wanted Rich to be a farmer, and Rich was a terrible farmer. Any machinery he touched, he broke. He was a musician, and that did not fit his father's plan. Rich was a creative soul. And so then he's, he's greatly troubled, but every time he writes a song... He comes out with these, sing your praise to the Lord. You know, it's one of Rich Mullins' songs, or our God is an awesome God, he reigns. So this troubled soul, when squeezed by God and life, this, these songs come out, and they're incredibly profound and deeply spiritual. But his personal life was a mess. He was struggling as an alcoholic. He, he, he wanted desperately to serve God, but he couldn't deal with the pain of his own dysfunctional relationship with his father. Anyway, Rich was basically headed for a crash until one day he's driving in a car and, a, and his friend says, hey, I've got this cassette tape, dating this moment, uh, I've got this cassette tape of this preacher, you should really listen to it. And Rich kind of looks at him like, are you kidding me? Like, why would I want to drive down the road and listen to the words of a preacher? And, and, and uh, his friend says something like, no, it's, it's, you actually need to hear this. And it, the preacher was Brennan Manning. And they put the tape on, and, and, and basically it comes to this point in the, in the message from Brennan where Brennan says this. I'm convinced that on Judgment Day, Jesus is going to ask us one question. Did you believe that I loved you? Did you believe? That I loved you. This is one of the key differences between Saul and David. 
David knew he was chosen by God and loved by God. Not because he was a head taller than everybody else. Not because he looked better than anyone else. David didn't win a popularity contest. That came later. <laughs> he was chosen by God long before he was popular. David didn't win a moral perfection contest either. Still, he was chosen by God. Last week, Kelly underlined for us that appearance is not the most important thing to God. He said, appearance is something, but the heart is a God thing. My paraphrase would be, preoccupation with appearance is a human thing. Preoccupation with the heart is a God thing. So how did David live through this long season when he was a king without a crown? I think the answer is clear. David wasn't focused on the crown. It wasn't his aim or his goal. I'll tell you what David's aim was. Responding to the love and mystery and majesty of God in song. His aim was to be a songwriter. His other big aim was to be a good shepherd to care tenderly for the sheep entrusted to him. Beyond that, everything else was extra blessings and extra challenges. And I'd say this, beyond aiming to be a songwriter and a shepherd, David aimed to be a good friend, evidenced by his relationship with Jonathan. And David also aimed to show compassion and generosity to the weak and the marginalized because David knew what it was to be weak and marginalized. Eventually, he, he does the profound, my favorite David story almost of all time is Mephibosheth, welcoming the cripple to his table. David didn't aim to be king, so perhaps waiting for that to happen wasn't a big deal. Well, he had some challenges, too, while waiting. <laughs> so being chosen by God and being loved by God does not exempt David from the struggles common to man, and so David struggles. Appreciated that, um, Jordan, the song selection this morning, and there was a line in the first song about, you know, God wrestling with the sinner's heart. David is like this. It's David's wrestling. God is wrestling with him, seeking a, a, an undivided heart, but sometimes David, like any human being, has a divided heart, and he hungers for all the things flesh and blood want and need. David Wolpe, in his book, David, A Divided Heart, begins to describe and introduce the David story this way. Here is a drama full of deeds, heroic and base, a story of faith coupled with an equal pursuit of power and military might. It is also a story of the power of women. Women, as we shall see, repeatedly push the hinge of the narrative in the direction it needs to go. The presence of women is complemented by the absence of miracle. God is invoked so often that even some skilled readers fail to notice that with the murky exception of raising Samuel from the dead, there is not a single supernatural miracle in the entire story of David, the longest continued narrative about a human being in the entire Hebrew Bible. At times, it seems when David needs a miracle, God finds a woman to enact it in an earthly manner. Benefiting from this divine to staff bounty is a man whose relationship with women is the most detailed and complex in the Hebrew Bible. The writers, 
let us assume plurality, of the book of Samuel were artists of genius. The later biblical book of Chronicles retells the story but censors objectionable parts and makes it more pious. In other words, Chronicles of Samuel made boring. The characters in Samuel are vivid, powerful, individual, even small sketches like Paltiel weeping for his lost wife, Michal, as she returns to David, Commander Joab sending a messenger back to David, assuring him that Uriah has been murdered, the dramatic denouement of Absalom's rebellion. These moments described below stay etched in the reader's memory as the highest expression of narrative. David has been claimed by scholars as the first great work of history, the first biography really worthy of the name in a modern sense. Whoever these initial artists were, they have rarely been equal. They left us an account of a warrior, poet, hero, wily as Odysseus and as tortured as Lear, yet as faithful as the shepherd of Israel. They gave us David. I'm pretty thankful for those people that gave us the scriptures and that they didn't edit out the tough bits. So, in the few minutes I have left, how do I give you David? A couple of years ago, I was given a great gift by a writer, Mark Buchanan, Canadian author whose books have helped and touched me deeply. The Rest of God, Your God is Too Safe, gave me access to a draft of a book he's working on, a novel on the life of David. It takes a brave man to tackle the story of somebody so complex and so loved. And then he let me read an unfinished work and even let me quote it live. So here goes. Here's an excerpt from, from the draft of David, a novel by Mark Buchanan. He stands naked before the wind, pummeled by the brusque fist of its gusting. It pulls his hair sharply back, tugs hard at his flesh, abrades him, scours him. He opens his mouth to swallow the wind. It empties and fills him all at once. He anchors down his heels against its potency, pushing straight into it to stay upright. The sensation is a flying. Many things come hard for him, speaking with his father, listening to his brothers, watching his mother in her silent anguish. But this comes easy, opening himself wide, bending himself whole to the voice, letting nothing, no cloak, no shield, no armor, not even his tunic come between him and whatever the voice wants to say to him, however the voice wants to say it. Here he is in his element. Here all things are clear. Here all things are possible. Here he is truly, fully his undivided himself. He is David. This is the best part of the day. The sun is down, but night still waits to spread its cloak. Darkness is just a rumor at the edge of the earth. Colors drench the sky. Wind sweeps fields and drives out wilting heat, and everything wakes. Birds burst with one last fanfare of song, one last flourish of flight. Insects in grass and sky whir, they click, they thrum. Groundlings scuttle or slither, the sheep rouse with fresh hunger, and he rouses too. The languor of midday falls off him in a rush. He is quick and light, keenly watchful, which is good, which is needed, because the lions rouse too. 
Oh, but he loves this, the alertness in himself, the air ecstatic. The, the angels about to sing in his limbs, prayer and sinew join God's wild presence. And his own sheer aliveness fit together, tightens supple as laced fingers. It steadies him, readies him for come what may. He rubs the pocket of his slingshot warm and cradles it in it one of the stones he's plucked from the stream that morning. It's round and smooth and green. It will be a shame to lose it. Never mind. An insect sharp and urgent tells him he'll need it soon. Jesse is angry again, angry at him at some task poorly performed, some chore neglected, something, always something. His anger is never explosive, more a low, steady seething of frustration that tightens his voice, clips his gestures. Anger compresses the man into fierce abruptness, a hissing of words through clenched jaw. He puts things down. Words and wood and mattocks and adds is with a sharp hardness. That's his way of yelling. Jesse's squatness is a mystery that from his loins sprung seven tall men. Through that look, though that look, the strong angular bones embossed all seven faces, the tumble of dark hair wildly falling in curls is evident enough in the father when he was younger. Before his wife grew sick, he must have been dashingly handsome. But, that, but the burden that befell him on her illness, all those boys in a farm to tend, wears him stumpish and churlish. Worry plows his face like oxen in deep furrows, but without the neatness of rows. David! Father? What is this, boy? Jesse stands over a sheep that looks perfectly normal. Father? This! And with that, Jesse presses his stubby hands, spread wide into the back of the sheep's woolen coat just above one shoulder, and parts the wool so the skin shows. A muddy sore emblazons pink skin. The sore is browny red and creamy yellow, and bugs spot it like currants. The sheep flinches beneath Jesse's roughness. I didn't see that. That's what I mean. You didn't see it. You were sitting in your shady oasis composing your little poems, singing your little love songs to the sky, and you didn't see it. David, listen. To see, you have to look. Huh? It's basic. No looking, no seeing. You get that look, David, look. Your head is so far up in the clouds you can't see what is straight in front of you. Ugh. Jesse tosses his hands up and walks away. Take care of it, boy. David sits on a rock and gathers the sheep to him. It trembles, and so for several minutes, he just colds it to calm it, whispers in its ear. With his skin of wine, his vial of oil, he cleans and treats the wound. He knows this sheep well. It was the runt of triplets that came last, sprawling out dole-aisled and spingled, spindle legs slickered in a gossamer of blood and mucus. He knew straight away it would not survive, that its siblings would trample it in their rough fatality. So he did what he knew to do. He cleaned it, then anointed its shivering, gaunt body with the broken womb water from another ewe and about to give birth. She had tried to calm to claim the lambs of two other ewes, so he knew her mothering instincts were potent, overriding all judgment. He nestled the rickety lamb, pungent with her own smell, into the crook of her neck. She dipped her head toward it, licked the womb stuff off, and then rose for it, the warm milk gorging its mouth. Now it's as hardy as any of his rams. He settles the flock in the fold and secures the gate. His room is next to this, a low, narrow, waddled hut, 
close enough that he can hear any disturbance with his sheep, but he doesn't bed down right away. He walks out to the edge of the ridge, stretch above a deep valley, and sits beneath starlight. He tries to wrestle away disappointment. He wanted to tell Jesse about the lion. That night he writes a song. It is his longest yet. And the next morning as the sun leaps up from behind the rocks and throws its arms wide across the the seams of earth, he sings it aloud to his sheep. They graze unperturbed. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You and a lamb look up. The lamb bleats pleadingly as if for him to sing it again. But now he's being summoned, called. One of his father's servants with imperious urgency calls to him to come. Come now. Come quickly. A holy man is here demanding his presence. They will not eat until he comes. The oil on his neck is as warm as blood. He has slit the throats of many lambs, lambs he's held, lambs he's nurtured from their first shivering breath and tottering step. He's held them one last time close against his chest. He makes his voice like still waters. They yield to the familiarity of his touch and voice unsuspecting. He pulls the blade quick and smooth along the soft flesh just beneath the throat. The lamb's large black eyes shine with wonder, then go dull. The the blood's warmth rushing into his hands always surprises him. His mother's paleness surprises him, though it's all he's ever known. His father, the few times he's talked about it, and only when he's deep in his cups, says she was a great beauty. Beauty that makes men foolhardy and brave, willing to fight armies barehanded, or that sets them groaning on their beds in the dark. But what lies before him is sorrow made flesh, skin the color of cold ash, wilted to bone, and eyes that pull up darkest emptiness. She rarely speaks. And then is like a ghost whispering in a witch's hut, bleak as doom. Mother? Silence. Mother? A groan. Mother, I need to tell you something. She turns her head slowly toward him. Her blank eyes register nothing. Mother, I'm leaving. Silence. Saul has bidden me. I'm going to be with the king. He's... He's not well. They, they, they say a curse lies upon him, and I'm going to play for him, and I'm going to sing for him. The songs I sing for you, a murmur. I may not return. With that, a light sparks in her. She raises her head. She looks at him. You are going to be king. No, 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 mother. I'm going to be with the king. As I said, she falls back into her abyss of silence. He's only been to Gebeah once before. His father sent him to trade a donkey there, a rough business of thievish haggling. His father clipped the backside of his head for the price he got, though David knew it was a good price. Gebeah is a steep climb from Bethlehem and into a scorched and rocky landscape. Its single virtue is a commanding view of all the land surrounding it. No enemy comes upon Gebeah unawares. A prostitute stands at the roadside just outside the city. She is not much older than him, but she is dark with illicit mystery. Her body has the coiled litheness of a panther. Her face is painted with glittery bird-like coloring. She has daubed a thick blackness around her eyes that make them look large and hungry. Her clothing is an artful combination of enticement and concealment, tasseled folds opening with the movement of an arm or leg to the sliver of dusky skin. Her arms are chimes of metal bracelets. A potent fragrance of exotic oils and perfumes wafts from her. Come to bed with me. 
Wild emotions clash and rise in him at the brazenness of this. He wants to run. He wants to seize her in anger and desire. He swallows hard and keeps walking. What are you afraid of, boy? Only bite where it feels good. Come. He picks up his heels and runs. The longing of him takes a long time to cool. When it does, one thing remains. A terrible sadness that he cannot speak of such things with his father. He needs another man to talk with him about what it is to be a man, to have courage and virtue and honesty and to fight those things in yourself that aren't these things. And he touches lightly again a hope he dares not lay hold of for fear it can never be, that Saul will be that man for him, that Saul will be his father. But the king lies curled on the floor. His eyes have the droopy, sleepy cunning of a serpent. His spidery arms clutch his spidery legs against the wideness of his chest, and he folds his large head down into the crook his knees make. A ghostly moan emits from him. His courtiers stand around him, frightened and agitated. They have given up speaking to him. It is either futile or dangerous, with no predicting which. When David is ushered in, they turn to him as one man, and all have the same look of resignation barely lightened with relief. The chief official steps towards him. Are you the son of Jesse? I am. And you play the harp and, and, and sing? I do. Well, then play for the king. David looks around for a stool. A courtier, seeing his need, brings him one and places it a few feet where Saul lies prostrate. His long back bends so sharply that his spine knuckles into his shirt. Every few minutes, a shudder runs through his whole body. He winches his arms tighter around his knees to keep himself from unraveling. A sharp cry tears from his throat. David is trembling. He sits on the stool and shifts to get comfortable until he realizes the discomfort is within him. So he prays. He opens the place inside of himself, a hidden, inmost place where the voice comes. It comes from outside, but it speaks on the inside, wordless, yet clearer than words. Words would diminish it. It is God's heart aching or rejoicing or grieving or laughing, opening in his own heart. It is the thing itself, whole and living, and the voice says, play. And so he plays. He plucks a string. The notes shimmer through the room like light. He plucks another and another, and the room bursts alive. Fragrance and color and sunshine and cool breeze enter, and shadows and stench and heat fly away. He opens his mouth and sings. His voice is angelic, beautiful, and terrible. It haunts, it lilts, it's worse than doom, it's finer than hope. It is storm and the end of storm. On and on he sings until he forgets himself, forgets where he is, until he himself is caught up in the spell his music casts and breaks. And when he finally stops, there is Saul, seated on his throne, radiant, jubilant, his arms stretched wide in extravagant welcome, my son, Saul says, 
begins to weep. So ends the excerpt of David, a novel by Mark Buchanan. Interesting. I'd never thought about how much David would have longed for a father in his life after being so utterly disdained and rejected by his own. And Mark's idea that maybe, just maybe Saul could be that kind of makes sense in the story arc. And of course we know it never happened. And so the reason why David is a king in waiting is because Saul is still alive and Saul is quite mad. And so David waits and he will not take the crown with his own hands. Most scholars agree that this time of waiting was 15 years. He was likely 15 when he was anointed, so that he didn't get the crown till he was 30, and most of you students are between 50 and 30 in the room. Most of you are waiting for something to be fulfilled in your life. David had to wait 15 years. We struggle with waiting 15 seconds at a traffic light. Oh yeah, we're in three hills, there are no traffic lights. <laughs> we struggle and we have to wait 15 seconds to download a file from the internet, because the Wi-Fi is so slow on the campus. Um, during these years of waiting, though, David's heart and his soul and his life are being refined, and he's wrestling with God, and he's wrestling with his own humanity. And in this wrestling, some of the greatest songs ever written were born. Songs that we still have today. Who cares if Rich Mullins wasn't a good farmer? He gave a song. Uh, David's flesh and bones have long since turned to dust, but his songs have endured. And during David's time of waiting, he was shaped and prepared for what lay ahead of him, and he spent most of that waiting time in the wilderness. And I've often told the students in my way of worship class that the worship of God is always shaped and renewed in the wilderness, in the place where nobody but God sees us. And when we learn to give ourselves to worshiping God in the wilderness, then we'll be ready to worship God where people can see us. But much of modern worship has lost this. But that's another subject that I'm not supposed to be speaking on right now. So that's, I, I'm going to end by um, singing some, just a, a David words and invite you to join me. Um, because we, all of us, can identify in some way to be waiting for some of the province, promises of God to be fulfilled. And in our time of waiting, we need to learn to trust and not hasten the process by taking things by force. And as we wait, we express ourselves honestly, openly, and we wait for the voice. And we ask God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from us. So um, why don't we stand together? I'm going to grab my guitar, and we're going to sing the words of Psalm 13 together.
Yes, my heart will Yes.